0: On Maynard.com.au A-U! <laughs> Brian <Hey, you. laughs> Canham, lead singer of Shudo Echo. How are you, Brian? Oh, I'm good, mate. Has the band technically broken up or is Shooto Echo still actually
1: going? You know, we never really broke up. We we never really officially announced, you know, this is it, we're finished. We just, we just kind of fizzled away, really. <laughs> That's probably not a very glamorous way to look at it, but we just, at the end of the 80s, was we all went off in our own directions and got into various, you know, production and new bands and things. Just at the end of the 90s, we did a one-off. It, it took us quite a few years to be coaxed into doing it, but we did a one-off in Sydney and it went really well. And pretty much after that, we just sort of thought, well, that was a lot of fun, you know, maybe we'll do this every now and then, and it became more and more regular and now we probably tour, you know, maybe every month. I thought it was only about twice
0: a year but you do it more than that now.
1: We spread it over the whole country so, you know, we might just do
0: Melbourne once a year, Sydney once every two years. Let's explain to people that have never had an encounter with Shudo Echo or Brian Cannon exactly what is the history of the band in a nutshell. I mean, you were the edge of the new wave, some people would say haircut bands, from Melbourne. <laughs> And you were in the L'Oreal ad, like, so you can't That's deny right. that one. Because
1: there's so much irony about the haircuts.
0: It's funny, of all the music, all the writing, all the sweating and work you guys did, people go, mm. oh yeah, haircut band. You've really gotten to people's no, no, heads, we Brian. Love we love it. Please explain that
1: time <laughs> to people who weren't
2: there. <laughs>
1: the haircut term came, number one, because we usually had quite outrageous hairstyles. But secondly, and probably more prominently the reason is Several of the guys not only pseudo echo but kids in the kitchen um, uh,
0: real life real life. send
2: me an angel, send me an angel. Right now. Yeah
1: some of them were hairdressers. So that's where the term kind of came from, I think.
0: Art students being in a band, to have guys who worked together being in a band. How did hairdressers come to find music at know. that time in Melbourne?
1: I mean, I wasn't one of them, but but there were definitely, I think it was just that sort of trendy scene, you know, being in the kind of fashion conscious industry that seemed to be, you know, a hip acceptable job to have on the side and be in a cool band at the same time.
0: Well, there was a time when everyone wanted to be a DJ. Was it, you know, in that time before that was easy to do, um, you'd just Mm. be in a band?
1: Yeah, I reckon so. Like, th- there were a lot of bands around the time, and my neighbourhood just seemed to have, you know, several bands that were all having a go at it.
0: Well, you and Pierre, Pierre met at high school there and decided to get the band swinging together. When did the whole shooto Echo thing take off? And you thought, wow, I've actually got a job here that I can quit the other one.
1: I reckon that was about eighty three. I was a uh, a tradie at the time, a cabinet maker, and and. I worked for my father's business, and I remember we had our band having. We finally got the lineup that we thought this is going to be. You know, this is the band. This is the one we're going to stick together. We christened it, named it Pseudo Echo, and then pretty much we just got lots of opening act opportunities. Um, I think because we were convenient, we had just a little electronic drum machine and a couple of keyboards. Not much gear.
0: Let's just draw the picture here. We're talking the early 80s. So when you have a drum machine and not much gear, that gear (laughs) in the early 80s was not terribly reliable, was it, Brian? No,
1: very unreliable. It would leave you cold on stage many times.
0: So you'd turn up and, like, it wouldn't just be a matter of rebooting it. The whole thing just stopped working.
1: Yeah, that was so unreliable—the keyboards, the sounds, everything. You know, you, the amount of times that we'd be apologising to crowds because you know we don't have our drums happening or this or that, or you know, it was it was kind of a nightmare that haunted us for quite a long time.
0: Would there be some sort of rivalry with bands that consider themselves rock bands, for example, the Uncanny X Men and you guys, mm. who were a different form? Was there, you know, was there a violent arch enemy thing going on there? I don't know
1: if it was that extreme, but there was definitely a bit of a, a bit of shunning, you know, a bit of, ah, oh, they're the sort of Bogany band and, and there was there was sort of two schools. There were the rock, sort of pub rock bands and then there were the kind of more uber trendy, you know, electronica bands. And there, and there were a lot of these electronic bands, you know, in the early 80s. So there were definitely different schools, but look, we all kind of got along really. I mean, we toured with Uncanny X-Men and, you know, we, we shared a whole national tour together. It was fun, you know, it was great.
0: And who were your influences internationally? What was it Duran Duran or Spando Ballet or something more obscure than that?
1: Oh no, they were definitely two of the, the big influences, probably before they were mainstream here though. Um, Ultravox was a really big influence. This means to me. I love you. you know, Simple Minds definitely.
2: I
0: think has been the most unusual gig you've done in your career? I imagine you would have like a, a list of like a dozen of pretty unusual, but what do you think when you're actually in the middle of it, you're going, this is weird? There have been several
1: like that, Maynard. <laughs> there have been many. Strangely <laughs> enough, we seem to block them out of our memories. There's been funny situations. Like I, I can remember one tour, we were setting up somewhere and it was the most surreal scene. There was a go, like as the gear was going on the stage and we were sort of getting off our tour bus and we're sitting in the venue, just sort of Waiting, the guys were setting up the gear, and while this was happening, I remember there was a guy in the corner, in a karate suit with a briefcase open, doing some paperwork, just like you know, nothing different. And then there was another guy in a rabbit suit, I think, and he was just walking through the venue too. And
0: oh yeah, is, is this some, some sort of Chapel Street thing? <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was it was so bizarre. I think really, when we we finally um, cracked the code, that there was in the hall had been hired for karate lessons earlier on in the day. And the rabbit, we don't know. <laughs>
0: We're not sure about that There's some Alice in Wonderland <laughs> tribute show right. that was going on there. It was pretty strange. Look, I probably became a lifelong fan of you guys when I actually had to work with you. I uh, had the sure. great pleasure of being the MC on the tour for Shudo Echo and Get This lineup, people. We started with Shudo Echo. We then had Village People and... And then Culture Club were headlining. That was a great tour, wasn't it, Brian? Oh, that was really great. I thought you guys were professional and I used to annoy the promoters every week because when you guys finished, I'd always bring you back on for a Beatlesque type bow because I mm-hmm. thought you guys deserved it. And the fans just loved that kind of stuff, you know? Sure, yeah, yeah. They really like to see you in a big venue. But, dude, do you have any memories of what it was like working with Boy George? Because on the first show in Perth, he scared the hell out of me. He was really He was a <laughs> nasty bitch. Yeah, he was a
1: peculiar <laughs> yeah. guy. There's no doubt about that. Very precious. Um, the band were great. They were all real fun guys. <laughs> I remember that George always travelled separately to the band and had his own band room and he was very insular and um, quite antisocial. But at the end of the tour, oh, he but was like Oh, that was quite,
0: exactly completely different. He, he turned it all around, wasn't he? <laughs> he, the, the, he needed the, lots of friends. <laughs> the, the first show, we were scared of him and by the last show, he was going, come in my dressing room, there's my rider, have a drink, hang out, <laughs> yeah. what do you want? It was just a complete turnaround. I think he was just tired the first night. Maybe. And he had a few sleeps. You must have been used to working with some mercurial personalities in your time. Oh, yeah. Um, for example, Molly Meldrum. And we can't ignore the, the <laughs> countdown effect on the career of Shooto Echo because he, he must have been a huge fan of you guys.
1: Yeah, very, a very genuine guy and uh, actually one of the the loveliest people I've met in the music business, to be honest. He's he's so um, just so loving and innocent and wouldn't hurt a flea, although he can be a bitch at times to well, you look, know, if you're on the wrong look, side of look,
0: him. Look, it seems to be uh, sometimes it can be Jack Daniels related, as all people. Can get a bit funny if they have a few too many drinks.
1: He really did a lot for us. He really went out on a limb and got the crew on side, and he really just took us under his wing. And he was very proud of the band. And um. You know, to this
0: day, we're really grateful for what he did to it, for, you know, for us. Because uh, Molly had come on and perhaps Molly had been a bit, uh, I don't know, uh, a bit festive at lunchtime and he'd just gone straight on and <laughs> done the Countdown show. Actually, <laughs> what was your favourite <laughs> appearance on Skit? You weren't there with one of the famous Iggy Pop appearances, were you? you weren't on No, n-
1: no, no. But we were on some strange one. The funniest thing and the most cringing thing that I still see today, uh, occasionally on late night TV, fortunately, is when, when Molly got us to host the show. <laughs> it's sort of been one of my golden rules with bands advising them just don't get them to act because that's right. not a good idea <laughs> putting us on a countdown and making us the hosts was just like really really embarrassing it ends a straight old line great stuff that is I'd like to introduce you to our drummer anthony hello
0: there's not much i can say about this next song it's tina turner she's hot and she's back this is let's stay together and you probably looked about 12 and you still look about 15 now, Brian. What is the secret to your good looks? Did, did your cabinet maker dad have like magic jeans? What was the story going on there?
1: Uh, but my mum's European, Italian, Egyptian,
0: and I think she has. Good skin and good jeans. <laughs> and ah. It gave me lots of good advice, I think. <laughs> and if you're buying a second-hand car, Brian is the master of getting a second-hand car <laughs> that's cheap. right. He taught me you don't buy a new car, you wait about a year, get one that's still under warranty and you save yourself thousands. And he did that with a Fiat X19, which if anybody has ever heard of the Fiat X19, they actually smashed one up on uh, Top Gear and on Mythbusters. They put it between two <laughs> trucks. It, it, if there was ever a new romantic car in that it was completely fun Functionless but look fantastic. That <laughs> is the right. Fiat, the Fiat X19. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Very <laughs> impractical. No <laughs> luggage space. No passenger space. In fact, let's go through. Let's have a bit of a Top Gear moment here. Let's go through a couple of the <laughs> new Romantic period cars you had, Brian, because you <laughs> oh, had some. Great. You had some fantastic cars. That's funny because
1: I, only only recently I made a list because okay. there had been so many. I thought I better catalogue this because you know I'll be telling the grandkids and I'll I'll forget one of them. But um, well,
0: you also you were fashion over form and content. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and, and I thought it was incredibly important type of car that I drove at the time. I thought I can't be seen in my trusty old Datsun One Eighty B. That's not cool, and I bought myself um against everybody's advice, even car yard salesmen who who would have the car on the lot ready to sell me would advise me not to buy this car, but I, against every every bit of advice, I bought a Triumph TR7. Anyone oh. who's had one will know straight away what I'm talking
0: about. Now, we're talking about uh, British Leyland Electronics <laughs> here, and they had pop-up <laughs> headlights and sometimes That's they didn't right. pop up, but when I was your age, Brian, I wanted one too because they were shaped yeah. like a triangle, they were really yeah. hot, the penthouse pet of the year, they were the prize That's they were it. giving away, they were just the really hot car. You don't mm. see many around now, because they just didn't last. I was going to say for good reason. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so what went yeah. wrong with the TR7?
1: What didn't go wrong with it? I, I can remember driving down High Street to a gig one day and just like looked like a dragon. Steam was coming out and smoke <laughs> out of the engine, and you know things used to just drop off it. So, did you have any more sensible car during the eighties there? Um, I went from that to my little Fiat X19, which is, as much as it was impractical, it was actually slightly better build. I went through a stage of the fast cars, got lots of speeding tickets, and then pleaded, well, my lawyer pleaded with the judge that he's reformed now, he's not going to speed anymore, and he's bought himself a Suzuki Sierra. And did that work? <laughs> well, it didn't go fast, that's for sure. That's for sure. It was certainly a rough ride, Yeah, oh. um, but it was fun, you know. And then I went through a four, four-wheel drive stage from then on. That was when that, that whole movement came in of the Touareg tractor, so. So to to this day, ironically, the last two cars, well, my current cars are a Land Rover Discovery, so I've still got the four-wheel drive bug, Mm. (laughs) and you won't believe this, a Datsun
0: 280ZX. (laughs) That is almost, that's getting back to the Fiat X19 (laughs) pseudo-echo thing again. Uh, I'm
1: just a, a stickler for old school, you know. I, I just love that
0: old school cool of the 80s. And when moving on, people go, well, what, what's Brian Canham up to now? And a lot of people, because you're not the front of the band that they were a fan of uh, when they were a teenager, think that somehow you've died or you've gone away. <laughs> or, you know, and, and, and I kind of get that too. They go, Maynard, you dead? I go, no, I'm just in Newcastle. Like, go, oh, all right, same thing. With not being in a band, you're busier than you've ever been.
1: I probably, towards the um, end of the 80s, I became kind of the, the Band's producer as well, and I can't really just—it wasn't so much a, a, a you know a, a label or a badge that I liked. I just really loved that job. I just took over and I liked the control and, and shaping a project. One of my first breaks was with Chocolate Starfish, and I had a, probably a, maybe a five-six year stint with the guys. The "You're So Vain" song I produced. Wow. Yeah, and then from then on, I produced all their stuff.
2: You're so vain.
1: Um, and now I have a studio in um, South Melbourne. It was the
0: old um, Armstrong's Metropolis studio. You remember the joy of going out and buying one of my first albums would have been um, something by uh, the Let's Stick Together album, Brian Ferry. And I remember like yeah. taking Great. the record home in that. And now when you give someone a, a CD, they go, oh, yeah. yeah the the, the yeah. excitement just doesn't seem to be there as much because no. it is easier to make. And how do you get people excited about a particular act again, Brian? What is that key?
1: It's, it, it's really hard. Um, you know, there are so many bands. There's so much to choose from. People are very nonchalant about it they they're not going to get that excited about a new band anymore for me i'm still a bit old-fashioned about the way a vibe works and i still believe that if an artist or a band is really good they can do live shows and that will spread people will talk about them people come and see them it's probably not in the same degree as it was in the 80s because it's, it's harder to get people out of their houses full stop that's right well there's you know, there's too much to do now. It's too easy to sit at home on the internet or look, yeah, definitely it's changed in that way, but I still do believe when an actor's really got it, people know about it.
0: Look, I'd like to go through a few questions being sent in from listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and just people who bump into me in the street, shove me to the ground and say, Hey, next sure. time I see Brian Gannon, ask him this. Sally Noonan wants to know, do you still think we are still not listening? Oh, okay. Um, no I, no, I think most of them are listening now. <laughs> and uh, and uh, what was the problem with the grammar in that song, by the way?
1: <laughs> who knows? Who uh, it was knows? a double
0: double negative, wasn't it? so, you, so who
1: knows? The yeah. lyrics back then were very uh, artistically sort of shaped.
0: Lisa Murray likes, wants to know what is your favorite shadow echo song? I'm sure it changes all the time, but what is it at the moment? Yeah, it does a bit. Um, I really like Love and Adventure. Okay, with, with love and adventure. What were you getting at here? What was going on in this song? What adventure were you taking us on, Mr. Brian Canham?
1: I think it was just the ride of
0: my life that I was living at the time. You know, I. The
1: lyrics are once again. There's a lot of metaphors and sort of hidden meanings and things, but I think it's. It's more based on the actual whole sound of the song was a big part to me, the melody and the chords. And I I can so remember writing it. And I borrowed some gear from uh, the Music Junction, the little shop that used to give us all the gear in the 80s. They were really great. (laughs) They used to loan us so much gear. And, you know, I'd always get this new keyboard and start making some sounds like a crazy professor. It came such a long way. Like it was, it was started out as this kind of, you know, sounded a bit like a Blue Monday or a Human League track or something like that. And then by the time we got in the studio, I remember we thought, let's put strings in this. And it was really exciting. We had about 20 players from the MSO
0: uh, moonlighting in there. Remind people now that's actual strings. So you weren't using a synth sound, there's actual no, violins no, no, and strings in yeah. there.
1: Yeah, there was a, like a small orchestra in there. And and it was funny because, you know, they were probably aging aging from about 20 years old to about 80 years old. Incredible experience to have these people working for us and playing our music. And then they'd sort of play it and we'd sort of go, yeah, that's kind of it, but it's the wrong groove. And I remember the part in Love and Adventure that sort of says, like a, a real 70s disco stab. They couldn't quite get that, and we were really it was hard to notate. They we sort of said, like it's a its a hit, but then it glides down chromatically down the neck, and you know, it's got to go wow. And the old girl who was about 80, she said, Oh, I like those disco
0: records. Well, you would hear that kind of thing in a chic track, like that, uh, exactly like right, Le Freak or something like that. That's Has that exactly in it? right. Yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the influence we were having then. <laughs> guys tour regularly so keep an eye out for your hair when you're coming through mr brian canham thank you maynard at the home of Mr. Brian Cannon? Yeah. Maynard here. How are you, Brian? Yeah, good, mate. How are you going? When was the first time you were on Countdown and when was the time all those girls screamed at you as the lead singer of Shooto Echo, Mr. Cannon?
3: That would have been uh, approximately 1983 or 84. Yeah, somewhere around there.
0: Now, of course, you have been in bands before that. you have been doing pub gigs around Melbourne. You're a bit of a Melbourne legend there. But how did it feel to suddenly be on TV with people screaming at you?
3: Yeah, it was pretty pretty bizarre, really, because I was a, a, a tradie at the time. I was a cabinet maker. <laughs> and, uh,
0: <laughs> you make you'd made a great ducktail joint, didn't you?
3: Ah, oh, some great coffee tables out there that I've made. But yeah, look, I, I was you know currently going to trade school at the time, and we were you know working on the band, and and that was when the countdown thing came about. It was quite surreal for me to have all these. Uh, a fellow tradies gawking at me and pointing and going, hey, I saw you on Countdown.
0: So, so at what stage did you decide to leave your day job, so to speak, and become a muso? What, what was the, the turning point?
3: Yeah, was it, yeah, there was a distinct turning point, and I, I remember it clearly because we still kept our day jobs as we signed our record deal, and I think it was, I felt that when we had a song in the charts, that was going to be enough. So that was pretty much it then.
0: Have you ever regretted being a muso? Many times. <laughs> it's an, It's an unusual trade. 21 years. Yes. Yeah. You would never have guessed when you started, would you?
3: No, no. It makes me about five when I started, right?
0: (laughs) Right. And of course, there's circles, there's ups, there's downs, like, like there are in any career. How do you handle the downs, Brian?
3: Well, I guess I've got a good family unit. Um, I've got, you know, a close circle of friends and they're all very realistic and down to earth and I think we keep each other's feet on the ground.
0: Yeah, now, because everyone thinks of Funky Town but, of course, there's listening, a beat for you, a whole stack of things. But you've had a lot of unusual moments. I've been present during some of them. You've always had some wild costumes. You've always gone for that futuristic look yep. dating back to the 80s there. Now, what are you guys wearing on stage these days?
3: Still pretty basic black now, um, a bit more rock and roll. Oh,
0: so also, also, you got away from the silver.
3: Yes, we've gotten... The, there's, occasionally, there's black PV and a few fluoro. So it's always a bit rock star-like.
0: Is there anything people should look out for on the show? Is there a few new songs?
3: No, no, look, we just do all the old retro hits, really. We keep it very nostalgic.
0: I've spoken to you many times, Brian. I always love to play Funky Town, but let's play one of your other big hits now. What's one of the other big ones you'd like to play for us this morning?
3: Maybe a beat for you.
0: OK, a beat for you. Now, is there anything you can fill us in about this song, why you wrote it, the history of it?
3: Well, I think it was you know, a song about one of my uh, sweetheart's uh, fetishes when I was a kid, uh, you know, seeing that girl across the room that didn't know you existed.
0: And making it all happen happen.
3: Yes.
0: And what year was this? Way back, early 80s. Well, how would your hair have looked back then, Brian? We'll try and get that picture in our head. Yeah, let's say
3: bigger, more hair.
0: <laughs> how do you look the same? What are you doing? You look exactly the same as back then. Oh. It's really annoying. What are you doing?
3: Well, I don't know. I must be just, mom spoiled. My wife and my kids, they're, they're very good to me. They're, I'm well
0: fed. Pseudo Echo, A big for you. Thank you, Mr. Brian Canham. All no right, thanks,
2: mate. you,
0: mainard.com.au